Hi, I'm Beth Fuller, and you're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast. I know the world can feel intimidating or scary at times, but I'm here to tell you it doesn't have to be. Through the lens of food, we can learn so much about one another, celebrate our differences, and maybe eat some tasty food along the way. Are you ready to do this? I know I am. So let's go on a food adventure together right now. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Food Adventures Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Fuller. Thank you so much for being here. And this is episode four. This is going to be a fun one. We are going to talk about all things happy hour. I have an incredible guest for you guys. She is going to blow your mind when it comes to wine. That sort of rhymed. As always, just a helpful reminder, all of the show notes are located on my website, www.elizabethrfuller.com. So put down those pens and pencils, relax, and let's enjoy this show. I love happy hour. I love everything about happy hour. I love the snacks. I love having a drink or a mocktail. But most importantly, I love connecting with people. I love sitting down, having a face-to-face conversation with someone about nothing even, and laughing and being silly and just decompressing from what is most likely an already super hectic and chaotic day. There's something so just refreshing and relaxing about enjoying happy hour. As we know, I love Italy, and so when... And this is something that I just thoroughly enjoyed in Italy. They do this thing. So they have aperitivo, which is happy hour. And then between, and I'm going to, I'm probably going to pronounce this really wrong. Between aperitivo and dinner, there's something they call passeggiata. Passeggiata is literally a stroll. Everyone comes out of their house, business, wherever, and you stroll. You stroll before dinner. You do it in the winter, you do it in the summer, you just, it's just a way to get your digestion going, to chat with someone or not even talk and just observe and slow down and relax. It's fabulous. And when I was 22, I lived in San Diego for a handful of years and happy hour in California, especially San Diego in the early 2000s. I don't know how it is now. I'm sure it's still the same. The bars were packed with people. Everyone was outside. All of the cocktails were two for one. I have spent so many happy hours in my early 20s that like bled into then going somewhere else and then going somewhere else, you know, and the next thing you know, you're closing a bar and that's what your 20s are for. I mean, it's such a fabulous, wonderful uh, alcohol-induced blur. But anyway, I digress. I think happy hour is such a blast. I still, even at home now, participate, you know, maybe once or twice a week in a happy hour, whether it be with me and Todd and we'll play a card game, we'll have a drink, maybe we'll make a small cheese board or with friends on a Zoom. And, you know, we pick a cocktail, we all make a snack and we will do happy hour for even like a half an hour just to see each other's faces because... I miss you guys so much. All right, so let's pull it together. 
We have a show to do. So with that, let's get into some questions. Are you guys ready? Let's do this. So Cindy in Eugene, Oregon writes, how does one start making sushi at home? Oh, Cindy. I have too gone down this sushi making wormhole. So let me tell you what I found. I think this is a lot of fun. This is a good food adventure to try at home. If you have kids, kids can get involved with this really easily. It's a great way to use up little like bits and bobs of vegetables that you might have laying around from a week's worth of meals that you're like, what can I do with this little piece of leftover avocado? Let's make some sushi. So when you're making sushi, I think there's a few things important steps and once you get this part down it's all just creativity and whatever you want to put in the middle of it you need to get a bamboo mat to roll the sushi i'll link to one on my website they're super cheap you can get them on amazon or even at if there's a local asian market that you can support near you i highly recommend that the next step is getting nori the nori sheets are compacted sheets of seaweed you want to get the nori that is specific for sushi it's just a little bit thicker it's not as flimsy it won't break as easily there's other nori sheets out there that are better for snacking people love to snack on them so when you get the nori make sure it says for sushi on the package the other thing is you're going to learn how to make sushi rice sushi rice is use you use a short grain Japanese rice kernel. And on the package, it's going to say specifically sushi rice, or it will say Japanese short grain rice. This is important because if you use anything else, it will probably fall apart. The other thing is you need to season the rice because it needs to get sticky and hold together, which is what makes sushi rice so amazing. You can do this in a few different ways. If you already have unseasoned rice wine vinegar at home, all you have to do is add a little bit of sugar to it and some uh, salt. If you're going to go out and purchase it, you can get a seasoned rice wine vinegar, which already has the sugar and salt added into it. Either way, whatever rice wine vinegar you pick, we can make it work. All right, let's make this rice, baby. So you're going to make the rice like you would normally. Just follow the package instructions. Then at the end you're going to season the rice. Now, once the rice is cooked, you're going to transfer it immediately to a large bowl and you're going to drizzle, 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 for nizzle, my snizzle, with the sushi vinegar. Then you're going to use a spatula and very gently fold the rice. Kind of more of like a slicing and lifting motion rather than a stirring and smushing until the vinegar is evenly mixed into the rice. Then you're going to let it cool. This is key. You want to cover the bowl with a damp towel so that it's touching the surface of the rice because you don't want it to dry out. You can let it cool on the counter or in the fridge just until it reaches like a room temperature. And then you want to use it immediately. If you have to make this ahead of time, you can. And you can do it and leave it in the fridge maybe a day or two at the most After that, no bueno. All right, so we've done the sushi rice. We have the nori sheet. We have our bamboo roller. Let's make some sushi. This is the fun part. I think it's all fun, but this is when you can get creative. You can make veggie sushi. You can take 
The slow roasted salmon from the other day that we talked about. If you want to throw that in your sushi, cook shrimp, raw fish. Just make sure you're going to a really reputable fish person to get your raw fish the, and ask for sushi grade fish if you're going the raw route. I love raw sushi. That's actually more my jam than the cook stuff. But you really do need to make sure you're getting the most high quality fish possible. And one of my tips is, I mean, you can look at different food blogs for sushi roll ideas, but honestly, I look at my favorite sushi restaurants menus and I try to pick maybe one or two rolls off of those menus and try to make them at home because why not, right? So you're going to take all of your ingredients that you want to put in the sushi and cut them up into little matchsticks. And you want to do this all ahead of time. So I would have like a little bowl of avocado cut up, a little bowl of carrot, a little bowl of of cucumber, the fish, anything else that you want. In. Maybe a little dice, uh, finely diced scallion. Maybe it's a little sweet potato that's already cooked. What, honestly, whatever you want, put it in your sushi. It's going to be delicious. So you're going to take your sushi mat, the piece of nori, you're going to grab some of your sushi rice and you're going to smush the sushi rice out so it fills up the entire nori sheet. Now looking at your beautiful creation of the nori sheet smushed with the rice, try to visualize like half an inch from the bottom. That's where you're going to start placing your ingredients and go up. So you want it so the ingredients that you're using obviously don't take up the whole sheet. Maybe fill, leaving that half inch gap at the bottom with the rice and the nori sheet. So maybe it fills up to about the middle of the sheet. A little less is more with this, uh, but you can still have fun with it. So say you put the even smoked salmon, a little bit of cream cheese, some cucumber, and there you have a Philly roll. Sprinkle maybe a little sesame, toasted sesame seeds in the middle. Then you're going to take the bamboo mat and you're going to start rolling up away from you and just letting the mat help the nori sheet and the rice and all the fillings kind of roll up on each other to make a sushi cigar. And then with a clean, sharp knife, start slicing it up, get some sweetened pickled ginger on the side, maybe a pre-made seaweed salad from the sushi department at your local grocery store, some frozen edamame that you can easily defrost in the microwave, sprinkle a little crunchy salt on top of that. Oh, here we go. And don't forget the wasabi and the low reduced sodium soy sauce. If you do make this, please tag me on Instagram with any of your sushi pictures at let's go on a food adventure. And Cindy, thanks for the question. So our next question comes from Steve in Agunquit, Maine. Steve writes, My partner and I have been staying in on the weekends because of COVID. We usually always do something for happy hour, and we need some ideas for what we can do now at home to have a little more fun than just opening a bottle of wine or making a cocktail. Help. Steve, let's party. I've got you. All right, we're going to get real food dorky here. So one of my favorite things to do, and you're, you got to just bear with me here, is to do a blind taste test. I love them. 
My husband and I do them all the time to entertain ourselves. We've done these with alcohol, whether it be vodka, maybe ciders, maybe it's a themed beer, like a fall October beer or summer beer taste test. We've done it with wines. We've done this with popcorn. We've done this with hot sauces. <laughs> you name it. We've done a taste test for it. I think they're so much fun. We've done it with different types of like Oreos versus the ones from Trader Joe's versus the ones from Whole Foods. It's fun to go out one and purchase all this stuff. And then second, to set it up and surprise your partner or your roommate, whomever. And if you live alone, well, then you get to do this all for yourself and spoil yourself with a little taste test. And in my old age of 40, I forget what's what. So I, I usually am the one who writes down, I will go out and pick everything. And then I make a little cheat sheet chart. Like A is this, B is this, C is this. And then on the back of um, a plate, like a disposable plate or disposable cup, I will write the letter A or number, whatever you want to use, symbol. I don't care. And then I put whatever is supposed to be next to A. You get, you get the idea. It is always a shock and surprise what the winners are and what the losers are every single time. I mean, when we did the tequila taste test, we, the key is also being consistent with what you're tasting. So like if you're doing, for example, a tequila taste test, you want to pick one type of tequila, whether it be a Blanco, a Reposado, or an Anejo, and then get a bunch of nips in that one kind and then taste them that way. Because then you're kind of working with the same thing. If you were to do like the popcorn one, pick one type of popcorn. Maybe it's cheese popcorn. And then get a bunch of different bags of just cheese popcorn and then taste it that way. Honestly, it really is a surprise of what comes up on top and what's on the bottom. You always go in thinking the more expensive one, at least I do, that the more expensive one is going to be better. It Nine times out of 10, it's really not. So I encourage you to explore this and try it and have some fun with it. The other thing that I love doing, which Sherry from episode two talked about, is cooking with friends or family on Zoom or FaceTime or Skype. And I pick a recipe or they pick a recipe. We pick a date and time that works for everyone, get all of our ingredients, and jump on the call. And it's almost like this fun, interactive little supper club. I recommend doing it with a small group because it can get a little chaotic with so many people talking, but it's seriously so much fun. And it feels like you've got people in your house that you're enjoying a meal with. And I can tell you right now, more than anything, I miss entertaining. I miss events with my friends and family. I mean, I miss hugging people, but Man, I really do. I am craving some some friend and family time and just laughs in person without a mask on. I know we're getting there. I'm not trying to get dark, but this is a great way to connect with people. So enjoy and Steve tag me in whatever adventure you decide to go on on Instagram. So our next two questions are very similar and I thought we could group them together. The first is from Luke on email and he writes my roommates are vegetarian and vegan i'm a meat eater 
We watch a lot of sports together, which is perfect for apps or snack food. Any fun ideas for a vegan app I can try. And then Matt from Red Bank, New Jersey writes, what's the best apps to make when friends visit? So I got you, Luke and Matt. Let's talk about it. All right. So I think all of the recipes that I'm going to mention will check a lot of the boxes for both of you. Um, But let's start with Luke's question first and talk about some vegan and vegetarian options. Both of these recipes are coming from Minimalist Baker. Love her. Love her stuff. Her recipes, I've never had a fail. So thank you, Minimalist Baker, for always making me look good whenever I make one of your recipes. The first one is the chickpea shawarma dip. I have brought this to many of parties and it is spicy, creamy, delicious, easy, and vegan. All you need to do, and I'm going to post the link to the recipe in the show notes, but I'm just going to generally describe it. You get some store-bought like garlicky hummus. You're going to smear that on the bottom of a serving platter. You're going to take a little bit of that hummus, set it aside. You're going to mix that with some lemon juice, some dried dill, some minced garlic, a tiny bit of almond milk, even water's fine. Mixy mixy. That's the garlic herb sauce. Done. In another bowl, you're going to make a tomatoey parsley salad. Chop up some fresh parsley, toss in a little bit of red onion, a little Roma tomato, cherry tomatoes, whatever tomato tickles your fancy. Little lemon juice, olive oil, salt and pep. Mixy mixy. Set that aside. Now let's talk about the chickpeas for a second here. One or two cans of chickpeas. I think one is more than sufficient for a group of just a few people. Toss it with a little bit of olive oil. Tiny bit of, I think she says coconut sugar, but I'm guessing like a turbinado sugar, even regular cane sugar. I know vegans aren't big on the cane sugar because it's processed with bones. I know. I know. Fun fact. Um, so whatever kind of sweetener that's a sugar that you like, toss that in. And then it's like smoked paprika, cumin, salt and pep. Uh, I think there's some turmeric, some dried oregano, tossy, tossy, put it on a sheet pan. You're roasting those in the oven. They're going to get crispy. They're going to be delicious. You can even throw some cayenne up in them. If you want to make them a little spicy, a little fiery baked chickpea action, so then you smear the, the hummus on the serving platter. You sprinkle that parsley tomato salad down. Drizzle the garlic sauce that we just made, that garlicky, herby, lemony sauce. Sprinkle the chickpeas on top. Then you're going to take like a pre-made chili garlic sauce from the Asian food aisle scoops them out and just like daub it here and there casually on the platter that's kind of it serve it with some pita chips some chopped up veggies Mm -hmm. it's so so good I'm as you know I sit here and talk about food with you guys and when I stop recording 
I literally have to eat something. I took a break between questions and I had lunch. You best believe I definitely got sushi for lunch. Mm-hmm. So that happened. All right, let's let's move on. Enough about me. Back to Luke. So Luke, the other one that I have for you, again, is Minimalist Baker. This one, I think you could also turn into a meal, dare I say, but let's just talk about it as an app. Crispy, breaded, cauliflower wings. In like a sweet and spicy sauce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cauliflower is like taking the world by storm. It's turned into rice, pizza crust, and now chicken wings. So you're going to take the, and again, I will link this recipe, but we're just going to talk about it. That's what friends do. We talk about food, make each other starving. And this recipe uses one of my favorite tricks to make things crispy in the oven without using an air fryer. You're going to take a cookie sheet and one of those metal cookie baking cooling racks, put the cooling rack inside the cookie sheet. And now you've got airflow that's going to circulate over everything. If you have a convection oven setting on your oven, even better, you're still going to do this trick plus the convection setting. If you don't, totally fine. I think this will work. If you have an air fryer, try this recipe in the air fryer. I bet it would work. And like with anything you're frying or air frying or baking to get crispy, you're going to dredge it in a wet mixture, which in this case, it's the egg. Um, I'll mixy mixy it up. And then in a crunchy mixture, in this case, I mean, you will need a food processor for this part, but I think it's kind of cool. So in her crunchy coating, she uses raw cashews, sea salt, cayenne, garlic powder, smoked paprika, and then either arrowroot powder or cornstarch or even potato starch. So you're going to throw all of those things in a food processor. You want it to resemble like a semi-fine meal. You don't want it to be super coarse, but you also don't want it to be a total pulverized flour, which can easily happen in a food processor. So keep your eye on it, pulse it a few times, check it, smush down the sides, pulse it again. But I really do feel like this is one of the reasons why this is going to stay crunchier than if you were to use like panko or breadcrumbs, which can lead to soggy bottoms and nobody wants a soggy bottom of anything. So anyway, you're going to toss it in the egg mixture, toss it in this mixture, the cauliflower florets, bake them on the high heat, super yummy. Once they're done, you're going to pull them out. And while these are baking in the oven, you're going to make a super delicious, easy sauce for them. The sauce is... A sweetener, if you're not vegan, honey, if you are vegan, maple syrup or agave, I think. You want like a liquidy sweetener. Then it's really dealer's choice on the hot sauce, buffalo sauce, whatever you want to use. That is a any color that has heat and that is a sauce form. I love, you know, the general buffalo franks doesn't like a franks but whatever hot sauce that you like and the heat level you can tolerate some crushed red pepper warm it all up get it all emulsified and yummy together when the cauliflower comes out of the oven 
put, put them in a bowl, put the sauce on top, like drizzle it and keep tossing the cauliflower together and then serve it immediately. Dare I say you could probably turn this into a taco as well if you got some corner flour taco size tortillas, heat those up, make like an avocado crema, simple sour cream avocado, some lime, you could throw a hot pepper up in that, salt and pep, waz that in a blender or food processor, and then even get like a pre-made bag of some kind of slaw, dress that with, you could dress it with the avocado crema put that on top of these tacos like I'm literally thinking this is now what I'm having for dinner and this was not what I was going to have for dinner tonight I have to stop recording and go to the grocery store okay I'm back now Matt in Red Bank New Jersey any of those vegan vegetarian options will work just fine but I have a feeling you're looking for something a little bit meatier and as someone who's planned events for the last 15 years I can honestly say one of the things that I've learned, especially after hosting so many events in my own home, is you want to stay out of the kitchen as much as humanly possible when people are coming over. So you want to do all of the work ahead of time and then put it out. And when they come over, you're able to socialize with them and you're not stuck in the kitchen the whole time. So when I entertain, I like to have like a mix of cold or room temp things as well as maybe one hot thing that I'm pulling out of the oven literally as people are here or I put it in the oven right when they arrive and I set a timer on my watch and when it's done, then I'll pull it out and plate it really quick. But I already have everything set up, like the plate's ready to go, the dipping sauce or whatever is there. So there's a couple of things that I think could be kind of fun. And also, you don't necessarily know what everyone wants to eat and... This is just a fun way to maybe appease a lot of people. So my first suggestion would be to do a like bruschetta bar. So get some really good bread, cut a garlic clove in half, and then slice your bread. I like to then take the garlic clove and rub it on the bread very gently. Then add a little bit of olive oil and a little bit of salt. Pop that in the oven or grill it if you can, that's even better. Get it, pull it out, push it aside. Just keep an eye on it. Those things burn very quickly and I can tell you from experience, when something's in the oven, like bread, croutons, whatever, and all of a sudden you smell it, especially if you're in the other room and you smell it, chances are it's too late to save it. So, bread's done, great. That's the vehicle for all the yumminess that's about to happen. I'm gonna pull a little bit of a Giada De Laurentiis right now and say, say it right. So you can take your bruschetta in any sort of direction. And also think like, if you've been to Spain and you're in a bar eating tapas, they have many different styles of this as well, but they're just a little bit smaller and more bite-sized, whereas the Italian version, a lot of times you're going to eat it with a fork and knife, but the options here are endless. And like when building a cheese board, I like to kind of think of, okay, what meats am I going to put on this? What cheeses go with what meats? What little bites are going to make this a perfect tasty morsel in my mouth? I know. So with the bruschetta bar, sorry, bruschetta, bar it's kind of in the same vein I would definitely put out some cured meats whether it be prosciutto di parma or maybe some copa or serrano ham and then 
a couple of different types of cheeses, a burrata, maybe some whipped ricotta just from the cheese section in your local market, uh, a little bit of goat cheese. Maybe you want to do a couple of hard cheeses like Manchego or even a creamy Taleggio and just let it sit out at room temp for a minute so it gets delicious and stinky. Maybe we want to go in a Mediterranean direction and grab some fun hummus. You could get a thing of baba ganoush. On the olive bar, get those roasted cloves of garlic and when you get home, put them in a little container and smush them all around to make almost like a delicious caramelized garlic spread. Grab some mixed mushrooms. Say now you're like, okay, I'm feeling more comfortable. I actually want to cook something and I don't want to just get marinated things. Grab a container of mixed mushrooms. If you can't find that, get some cremini, maybe some white button, maybe some shiitake. Chop all those up. In the pan, saute, put a little olive oil, saute a little shallot, finely diced shallot. Once that's looking nice and sweated and a little caramelized, Put your mushrooms in. Don't put salt in the pan. There's two schools of thought with this. Some people like putting salt in, having the, the water come out of the mushrooms, and then letting the water, like the flavors of the mushrooms caramelize back up on them as like they cook and reduce down. <sighs> Great way to do it. I like actually not salting my mushrooms ahead of time and I will put them in the pan once the olive oil and the shallot have done its thing. Put in a fresh sprig of thyme if you have it. If not, no big deal. Either way, but you don't need to chop the thyme. Whole fresh sprig. You might need to add a tiny bit more olive oil because the mushrooms are like little sponges. They're going to soak up all of that olive oil pretty quickly. So anyway, if you add a little bit more and then don't touch them. Yeah, don't touch them. Let them get a nice caramelized crust on them. And then after a little bit of time, move them around. Don't touch them again. Once they've cooked down and they're nice and brown and just meaty little bites, then I will put in a splash of either Marsala wine or we always have port in the house. We like to drink port after dinner. I know, it's so old world of us. <laughs> and I might put a splash of port in there because port and mushrooms are friends. And that's it. Let the let the alcohol kind of reduce and cook out, toss them around, and then I finish with sea salt and pepper. And one more thing. Take those cherry tomatoes that are still on the vine that you get in the grocery store, put them on a sheet pan in the oven, little olive oil, little salt and pepper, on some high heat until they're just starting to burst or soft. Put them aside, oof. But you, the point is that you wanna get these little bowls of all this awesome, put it out, put the grilled bread at one end, and then just put them all out next to each other. You could even start in your mind of like, what are three bites of bruschetta that I would want? And grab those components for each of those three and then just put them out buffet style and let people make their own and they get to go on their own food adventure, dare I say, which is pretty fun. This is just taking a cheese board to another level. And again, bread is the vehicle. Who doesn't love carbohydrates? Am I right? Oh, one last thing. Let's put some really fun crunchy salt at the very end. Put like a teeny tiny little ramekin of it. And so people can finish with that because oh, 
crunchy French sea salt is the best. Maldon makes, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, you can buy it at any grocery store. It is, it's the crunch factor. The flakes are these gorgeous taller pyramids. And the thing with a salt like this, it's a finishing salt. You're not going to cook with this salt. It, you don't want to put it on things that until the very, very, very end because it dissolves so quickly onto things, but oh, it's so beautiful and crunchy and delicious. If you've never had this, I highly recommend it. I will put a link on my website, but I think you get the point in the picture. And if you need ideas of like what to put on the bruschetta, I would just Google bruschetta and see what recipes come up and then take a little bit from everything and then just put it out for your friends. So that I think is delicious and it's interactive and it's fun. The other thing that, and this is just going to be like, what? She just talked about burrata and now she's doing this, but you know, it's delicious and it's so processed, but who cares? Cause it's delicious. This recipe comes from my, one of my best friends on the planet. I call him Poodle. Other people know him as Nick. Most know him as Nikki and his husband, Chad. I had this at their house years ago and have been making it ever since. And I will bring it absolutely anywhere. If I have gone to your house at one point in time and you can eat dairy, I guarantee you I have brought you this dip. You take a 16 ounce container of sour cream, a 16 ounce container of chive cottage cheese, put it in a bowl and a packet of Hidden Valley Ranch powdered dip or salad dressing mix. That's it. I'm not kidding. You mix it all up. You can even put it back into the two containers you just dumped out because it fills them perfectly and put it in the fridge for a few hours. Slice up a ton of veggies. It's the world's greatest ranch dip and it's got cottage cheese in it so it keeps you full. It is so stinking good and so easy. So easy. I will link to a few more recipes on my website, but I think those will get you going. If you make any of these, please tag me on Instagram. Let's go on a food adventure. So I think we've covered our bases pretty well with all this, the food. Now we need to talk about the other component of happy hour, booze. And I know just who to bring on to talk to us about all things wine. A happy hour isn't complete without some kind of glass of wine or cocktail. She is a certified sommelier. She teaches and educates people in restaurants near and wide. She can even do a home tasting at your home, virtual or in person when it's safe to do so. She's traveled the world and experienced beautiful glasses of wine. She's a mom to two gorgeous daughters and happens to be an amazing home cook. And we've been friends for 25 years. Please welcome to the show, Sarah McKinley. Hey, lady. Hello. How are you? Good, good. It's great to hear your voice. You too. I am like so honored to have you on and to pick your brain about wine. I have a million and two questions about everything and you are my true expert 
when it well, comes I might to have that. five things to say, but I can say 3000 <laughs> words of each of those five things. So I will try to edit myself because I can be quite verbose. So. No, be verbose. Great travel <laughs> word, by the way. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so let's just jump right into a couple of questions. So I need to ask you, how did you get started with wine? So I got started in, um, well, I took my first wine class probably in like 2005 or four. Um, I was working as a server and a bartender at a brewery in Portsmouth and I just fell in love with the wine, uh, which is funny because it was at a brewery, <laughs> but um, I used to help and be one of the persons that was on, they had like a committee to, to do the wine list. So every, you know, twice a year I would sit down and taste with all of the wine reps and I was kind of enamored and was like, I did not know that that's, this is a job. This is a dream. They run around selling wine all day. Like how amazing. Um, and I used to joke with one of the reps that I wanted her job and she's like yeah good luck no one ever leaves it's such a good job like the same kind of reps have been in that territory for like a decade but then later a year later she was leaving and she contacted me to kind of apply for her position because I knew her pretty well so that was the first um, job I got with um, Perfecto Wine Companies that was in 2006 so I was 25 at the time and then um, from there I just kept studying I went to beat Boston University. I was already enrolled when I got the job there. They have a wine studies program taught by two masters of wine, which is amazing. And then I also went on to study with the Court of Master Sommeliers and did my entry, the intermediate, uh, sorry, there's an introductory exam. So a lot of people say like, oh, I'm a, I'm a sommelier. It just means they took the first test to see if they could even qualify to take the, the real exam. Mm -hmm. And then there's a certified exam, which is the, the hard one, the one that you have to know, you know, blind tasting and what vintage was this made and where, and, you know, do all mm -hmm. of that rigmarole. And with that, um, I know that when you're talking and we'll get into it in a, in a few questions about the tasting and the aromas and the notes, is there a sheet that I've seen floating around on the internet? And I think I, I'm, it, it, that would explain all of that better. Um, so for blind tasting, yeah. And, and part of the court is to, to the testing to know that you're qualified, you have to do blind tasting. And what they do is they have a deductive um, a deductive tasting sheet and they have, you know, it lists everything that you have to go through while you're while you're evaluating the wine. And, and, and you know, think what you might, the court has, it's been, it's done a lot of good for wine. It's put wine out there. It's, it's kind of trained a lot of professionals, but it is an old white man's kind of organization and they have been in the news a lot lately. So some of you might be familiar with it. There was a really great article by Julia Molskin um, for the New York Times. And there's been subsequent like revisions of the article. And it was basically like a call a call out to the to the organization on sort of a bunch of me too issues and it was it was shocking luckily none of the people that i've worked closely with in the court were named and are still safe i think mm -hmm. but um there were some really big prominent people that i was kind of shocked to find out some of their past histories and this i mean this happens in as we know in every 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 field but um it's particularly damaging in this regard because there's a lot of young women that are trying to come up and it's it's been a man, man's game for forever there mm -hmm. are a lot more women in it today than there even was when i started you know i i, I believe there was no other female certified sommeliers in new hampshire when my friend and i passed the exam so we were holy the first. crap that's huge um, and that was in 2009 so it's really not that long wow ago. 
Um, no, but- and I read that article as well. Um, and I, I know Sarah feels the same way. We applaud those women for having the courage of standing forward and speaking your truth. And we need to end this misogyny and gaslighting that's going on in every area of our world. And so, you know, yeah, it was, a, it blew up the wine world, this article. And, mm-hmm. and, su- and subsequently so many, a bunch of female sommeliers, master sommeliers that I have like looked up to my whole career, like three or four of them have denounced the court and given up their standing. Like, so they're no longer members anymore. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of people previously, people left the court because they weren't doing enough to stand up over the summer with Black Lives Matter. So there was a bunch of people that left at that point. And then again, in the fall, when all of this hit the fan about the, about the, you know, rampant sexism and um, yeah. almost assaults. So, some hundred percent. Yeah. Oh no, those are definitely assaults, especially. Yeah. yeah it means disgusting. And I, I, it's almost like these organizations is much good as they've done for society and the producers. And I mean, it's a trickle down effect from when something gets big and, um, you know, brings a lot of good attention to all of the people who are involved in making the wine and, and all of that. But it's almost like it, the thing needs to be dismantled and rebuilt in a more in, inclusive way that it's not oh, just sure. a they're, white male dominated. Yeah. Their board was, was, was pretty, pretty pasty and vanilla, but they've, mm-hmm. they've re, you know, they, they canceled the, I mean, they redid the whole board. They have all new members and they, de- they definitely do have more women. They have, um, I believe there's only, only like two black men on the board, unfortunately, but th- that's something they, they do say they're working on. It's a little bit of lip service because they were pretty silent mm-hmm. um, over the over the summer. And there are a few members that have been called out for like blatant racism and belonging to like sort of alt-right groups and, and they've been stripped and they're not in the court anymore, thankfully, but it took a little too long for my liking mm-hmm. for anybody to stand up to that, so. No, I hear you, no, and thanks for bringing that. Yeah. So I watched a long time ago, I think it was what, 2013, the documentary Psalm came mm-hmm. out. Does that sound right? The year, yeah. something like that. And they mentioned in the documentary when they were talking about what wine, like the tasting notes, they were saying things like fresh cut grass and tennis balls. And you know, when you, whenever I've tasted wine, a lot of people are like, oh, it's citrusy. Oh, it's minerally. But I never heard fresh cut. Oh no, it was fresh cut garden hose. I think that's what it was. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. Where do those tasting notes come from and the aromas? So those, I knew as soon as you said salmon tasting notes that the tennis ball was going to be it. Um, and instantly I know that the, those are talking, actually it could be said about reductive wines, but that's going to get a little too geeky, but basically they're talking about Riesling sometimes. And, you know, when you say, where do you tasting notes come from? My first initial answer is always old white dudes. <laughs> because <laughs> Essentially wine writing um, originated. I mean, they, I mean, I don't know about originated, but, but it became very popular in England in, um, you know, a long, long time ago, but it was, it was old white men that were the arbiters of taste and the ones writing these tasting notes and, you know, doing the Sotheby's auctions and all of that. Um, so a lot of the, the, the diction, a lot of the verbiage that we use for wine, um, tasting notes actually are quite British, which is interesting. So, you know, petrol is one that's quite common and that has to do with Riesling as Riesling gets older sometimes more gasoline or petrol notes petrol just means gasoline so in England in America you're learning about wine and petrol like it's tricky you don't 
quite know, you know, it's like an oil maybe, but it, they're really just mean gas. Like, so it smells like gas. And as, as Riesling ages, you get this petrol kind of um, component to it. Um, and then the tennis balls, so that, that fresh cut garden hose, it's almost like a plasticity and the tennis balls, when you first open it, you mm. get this really intense, um, you know, that whiff of sort of plastic mm -hmm. or new, new, I don't know what they call it, the little green stuff, but that it's a type of plastic as well. But that has to, has to do with Riesling sometimes, they're under um, bottled under screw cap, but a lot of um, some wines can be reductive, and that has that's one of the taste that's one of the aromas that you smell. But and it's also that was that was Ian Cable, I think, or Co yeah, I think it's Cobble. I'm not quite sure who said yeah, that, yeah, and, right, and, yeah. and he's known for that. But that just might be his subjection to it. You know, if you ask somebody. You know, my, one of my girlfriends and I, we did all of our studying together. Um, we both became certified sommeliers through the Court of Master Sommeliers in 2009. And when we were studying, she had different wine teachers than me. And I, we always, you know, you're taught to take notes on every time you taste a Cabernet, for example. So her, you know, hallmark of, of Cabernet is, is black cherry, whereas mine is black currant and sometimes maybe eucalyptus, depending on where it's grown. So it's very interesting because when I go through my key points to how I got to XYZ and why this, I think wine is a Cabernet versus a Syrah, for example, I always have to have like black currant um, where she always has to have black cherry. So That's it's very interesting. Crazy. That is so bananas. And so are the, these flavors and aromas, are they coming from the dirt? Are they coming from the grape itself and like the air Weird. So, I mean, it comes yeah. from a lot of places. Like I mentioned eucalyptus. Eucalyptus yeah. is often, it, it can be a flavor compound in the grape, but it's also part of terroir. Like you see a lot of eucalyptus in Australian wines and Cabernet and Shiraz because um, eucalyptus is grown everywhere, like all over the island. Um, and then it, other, you know, Chardonnay, for example, apple is very typical. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the flavor compounds like in the grape. And some of the, they call it flavor, flav flavonoids maybe mm -hmm. that are yeah, given right. off. Mm -hmm. And there's different ways like, and this, I'm actually taking a seminar right now. Um, it's just online, but it's really getting to the science of tasting and like where these little molecules come from. And I'm not a chemist, I'm not a scientist, so I don't <laughs> quite understand all that aspect. But, you know, if anyone's more interested and wants to learn a little bit more about wine, I know we have a lot of time on our hands. Um, you mentioned the movie Psalm. There has been a second and a third, and those were really well done. Um, and then they also, they have a podcast, Psalm TV podcast, but there's a streaming platform, which I don't have. I, I might look into it, but it's really interesting because it does a lot of um, a lot of tastings and they do a lot of just educational material and they'll have like rare bottles where they'll go to, you know, France and try something from, you know, 1975 and mm -hmm. some random seller. So there's lots of interesting little vignettes on that, on that streaming platform. Awesome. Thank you for mentioning that. That's really cool. And I will link it on the, um, pod, on the podcast show notes. It's fascinating though. I mean, just even hearing you talk about the eucalyptus in the Australian wines and how it's grown right near it, which makes total sense why you mm -hmm. would smell it. And I, I never put those two in, like for me, whenever I taste an earthier, not even earthy, but like a red wine that's 
probably from that area. I always, my husband makes fun of me constantly. I always go, mm, it's jammy. Yeah. <laughs> That's like my <laughs> favorite descriptor when I, or like if a waiter's coming over a bartender or sommelier and I'm like, they're like, what do you like? I'm like, oh, I love a really nice jammy red with medium body. And it's got like a little bit of a quick finish, but it's not too tannic. And they're like, yeah, okay. You just literally probably listed in my head a thousand wines that I- So well, jammy to me, you want uh, um, I would go towards new world wines. So California, Australia, you want something that's a little riper. Mm -hmm. So when I hear jammy, it makes in a, in a, in a professional term, it would con um, connote ripeness. And, and that has to do with the alcohol levels. Um, and well, the levels of sugar at harvest that called bricks in America. Mm -hmm. Um, so if the grape is on the vine for longer, it's, you know, it has more sunlight. It's, it's, you know, it, it's grown longer. The longer the grape hangs on the vine, the more bricks there will be, which in turn is the higher level higher level of potential alcohol. So if you ferment out most of that sugar, you'll have a higher ABV, but sometimes people leave a little bit because you want to have the roundness. You don't want to have it too, um, too alcoholic, mm -hmm. you know, which is why. So you might, I would imagine that you like Zinfandels, maybe red Zinfandels, if you like that. I do. Know. I like a lot of Southern Italian red wines. Um, yeah. So that makes sense. Cause it's warmer. It's warmer. Yeah. I do like warmer climate wines usually i don't mind certain reds that are coming from like a chateau neuf de pop i like mm -hmm. i like that's also a very warm region okay. too <laughs> well, I guess that, girl you know me in my wine yeah. <laughs> i love it so okay another but, but real quick yeah. speaking of chateau neuf de pop it's interesting um so we're talking about tasting notes and and terroir of course has a lot to do with tasting notes and terroir mm -hmm. simply means like the conditions that it's grown, the climate, um, and everything that goes into kind of making the wine. And speaking of Chateau Neuf de Pop, um, it is an area where all of the grapes in that small area are literally grown on giant rocks. Like they call they call them pudding stones. I forget the French mm -hmm. pronunciation, but pudding stones. And so the the vines have to go very very far into the subsoil to to get water. But they're grown and they grow all over these like it's just a super minerally driven wine and so you can really taste that it tastes when people say minerally mm -hmm. like imagine if and this is a good descriptor even for german rieslings because a lot are grown on slate but um and and being in new england you know we're we're used you know granite state here we know um mm -hmm. well where i am anyways mm -hmm. we know like imagine you're sitting outside and you're sitting on a big rock and then there's a quick it just starts raining and then it stops again and you know you have that like steam and you can you smell what that mm -hmm. rock smells like mm -hmm. and that is exactly what some of these german rieslings smells like because they're grown in the slate but you also get that same sort of expression in um red wines that are grown on really rocky soil as well so so fascinating i could talk to you about this all <laughs> day long and we are going to continue <laughs> so you know those little cards that you yeah. see in the wine stores and it's like staff picks or it says like you know it's got a rating of 98 and then these are the tasting notes are yep. they really true or, so in, or is like the wine store just trying to move the wine so there, there's a two sort of separate questions so the the little the little cards in the business we call them shelf talkers mm. because they tell you they tell you what's you know what to expect in the product and there's different things those are very much manipulated like you know I don't mean to kind of shit on them, but, you know, Barefoot, for example, that's a mm -hmm. huge company. And at one point years ago in the 90s, they made pretty decent wine before they were bought by Gallo and become a huge, you know, giant, giant wine group or wine, wine, um, winery. But so they would put like 94 points from, you know, the Kentucky State Fair. <laughs> so you just <laughs> 
be a little bit cognizant of where the rating come from and, and rating some, some, some small yays and some people in the wine business will be like, oh, ratings are stupid. They don't, they're meaningless. And to a certain extent, yes, but it also bodes well that a professional or people have tasted it and think that it scores in this level, you know? Mm-hmm. So they, they, they do mean something, but when it says staff picks, they, um, generally they're not trying to just move stuff. If it's a staff pick, they put their name on it. They stand behind it. So I Mm. feel comfortable buying something that said that. Also the most important thing you could do and the best sort of arbiter of of taste would just be to talk to the employees and talk to the owners of the wine shops and go to smaller wine shops where they have people that actually know about wine to, Mm -hmm. to, to discuss with you as opposed to like big box stores or big liquor stores that, you know, have some you know 16 year old kids stocking the shelf so. totally yeah they don't really have a wine buyer they just have a liquor rep that's mm-hmm. yeah totally well so how do you actually taste a glass of wine properly so there's different things i mean and i always go through this whenever i'm doing a staff training for a restaurant or wine shop or anything um there are you know methods and and you know bullet points to kind of go through, but to most importantly, you just want to be cognizant of how you're tasting the wine and make sure it's kind of getting all over your palate. Um, it does help to slurp, but, um, you know, you don't want to just chug it. A lot of people just take it and they just kind of sling it back and, and it goes right down and then you're not going to get anything. Also never judge off the first sip. It's always wait till the second sip. Cause whatever you had tasted, if you had coffee previously, or you were just chewing gum or, you know, you just had lunch, it's going to affect your palate. So really wait till like the second or third sip to kind of make a judgment on it. But in, um, in, in training, there is, a deductive tasting format. And so this, this is basically for, for blind tasting when you're trying to deduce what the grape is. Um, and that is sort of a party trick that's unnecessary, but it is kind of fun and it helps to learn to, to practice blind tasting. It really helps you get a good grip of the varietals and you know what you might like or might not like in certain things and how they differ depending on where they're grown. But so with a deductive tasting format, like if you're going to be tested, if you're, you know, your goal is to become a sommelier or something, the first thing you do is it's the site. So you look at the wine, you want to make sure that it is healthy. Is it a, you know, is it a healthy wine, which means is it clear? There's no sediment. There's no like secondary fermentation going on. So that's the first, the first um, glance. And then you want to gauge the brightness, the concentration. Is there any gas evidence or is there any like particles, all of that. So you're kind of evaluating the site and then you go to the color and you make note of the color. And there's all variations in color from um, white and red. There can be like golden hues or green hues um, with red wines. The older the wine gets, it gets lighter with age. So if you kind of tilt your glass, you'll see different, there's a something called the rim versus core variation. So it'll be much lighter at the outside, out the outside towards the rim and it gets a little darker in the center. Um, and that'll help you gauge how old a wine is. And same with white wine, as a white wine ages, it gets darker. And as a red wine ages, it gets lighter. Um, then you go to the nose, the number one, like the most important thing in tasting wine really is smelling the wine first. Um, Cause they say like 70% of what you're going to taste goes through your ol- olfactory first you know your whole mm-hmm. nose um so you're just trying to i usually like if i'm just even just tasting for dinner or something 
I mean, I don't necessarily stare at it as much as I would if I was, you know, doing a class <laughs> or something, but I definitely look at it at first. As soon as it comes out, I look at the bottle as soon as I pour it, I mean, in the glass and then I smell and I smell, I probably smell the wine like 10 times before I even taste it because I'm really trying to get a good picture in my head of what it could possibly taste like before tasting it. So you're smelling it and say, are you, are you, you're just making notes of things that are in the wine. So say there's like, you know, um, little bit of you know citrus and baked apple maybe even coconut or something that all tells me like hmm coconut would be mo maybe there's some oak here or you know the citrus maybe there's nice acidity and just kind of kind of guessing what you think is going to taste like from what you smell and then when you're tasting it you are um there's a lot to to kind of gauge when you're tasting it and first in the palate you want to the structure is very important and, and structure is probably number one in determining if you're blind tasting, even more so than fruits and stuff, the structure. And that means like, is there um, the tannin level, the acidity level, the alcohol, the body, and maybe this, if there's sweetness, if there's any residual sugar. Um, and then you kind of go through the palate and what you're tasting on the palate. Does what you're tasting, are you still tasting the citrus and the lemon or the apples or did that turn into apricot on the palate. Like it does the taste meet with what you expected of your nose. And then, um, then you kind of come to a conclusion, like, is it good or what it, if you're, if you're blind tasting, try to guess what it is and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's a basic rundown of it. Wow. That's amazing. I'm in such awe of your knowledge and skills. So when you say blind tasting, do you mean like your eye, and this is, is a silly question, but do you no. mean like your eyes are closed while you're drinking it? <laughs> no, it just means you don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so like, but if you're doing a blind tasting, it's just like you in the, in the kitchen and the kitchen. It's blind. Like, it's like a blind. Yeah, no, it's just like, you don't know. So when I was studying, for this, <laughs> I, thought you, I, I literally <laughs> thought you meant like you would have you had your eyes closed and you're like yeah. fumbling for the glass of wine. That would be so hard. <laughs> no, like, so when we were studying for the court, for our exams, and, and even after we were, um, got our small A certification, then we went and did WSET. So the WSET is a precursor to master of wine. And then if you want to be a master sommelier, that's through the court of master sommelier. So the court is, is for the master sommelier. And then um, WSET, which is a wine spirits education trust that is a British also a British um, based organization. That is the precursor. You have to go through all of those different levels. It starts at like your basic, then there's intermediate, there's advanced, and then there's a diploma level, which is a really intense. So I have my advanced for WSET and I'm a, just a certified sommelier for through the court. But when we just wanted to keep studying because to keep it fresh. And if you don't have something you're kind of looking forward, like studying for, like you just stop kind of practicing. Although now, I mean, everything is meaningless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Mm -hmm. but uh but you know at, at one point this stuff was really important to me <laughs> no I know I know and no and you got to find your joy somewhere so then we can fight the battles we need to fight exactly yeah so we still and I mean I haven't lately because I haven't seen any of my wine friends but I, one of my best friends is is somebody I met doing all this and my husband always jokes and hit her head like thank god you guys found each other because we're sick of listening you talk about wine so you can to yourselves about it you know so even at dinner parties and we were in a grub club together mm -hmm. for years where we you know had dinner parties once a week for you know this is pre-kids but um we would do it at, at parties too like just to like I would bring something to, to blind her on and she would blind me or like we would have our husbands go and pick something out of the basement and like not tell us what it is and it's just it's just fun and something to keep your senses up and I, I absolutely love that and when my husband gets home tonight I'm gonna be like you're gonna blind me and he's gonna be like what in yeah. that like kinky so world are we going to do I'm like no 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 like get that bottle of wine <laughs> 
there is glasses and this is just sounds so bougie but when i was in paris i went to this um dinner it was a sommelier owned restaurant and he was like the world best sommelier they have competitions every year and he got it like twice in a row and he did this tasting menu so you don't know what the wines are and you have to guess and you they don't tell you what the food is because once you learn a lot about this it's like oh if you're gonna serve me salmon and a red wine then I know that might be Pinot Noir or that might mm -hmm. be Beaujolais so know what the menu is going to be until you have the, the wine in front of you too. And then the third course, which is the hardest is the main course, but it's served in a black glass. So you can't see the wine at all. Oh my and that God. makes it very, very tricky because color, like I said, has so much to do yeah. with what the, what, what the varietal is. And once you learn more and more about it, like Pinot Noir and Nebbiolo look very similar in the glass, but they taste very mm -hmm. different. They you know, Nebbiolo has a lot more tannin. They both have super high acidity, but there's a more rusticness, depend I mean, depending on where it's grown, but there's a more earthiness sometimes to mm -hmm. some, some Nebbiolo. Mm -hmm. But so that, that was what, that, that was what we had in the black glass. I mean, I wanted to buy one so bad and I didn't because it was like $50 for one glass, but that's one, you know, one purchase I still regret to this day. Oh no, but you, I, you need to buy yourself that black glass. Like how glass. often Like if Adam this? is listening <laughs> to this, Adam, <laughs> Sarah's husband, man up and get your wife yeah. two of those black glasses so her and her best friend can do this to each other. So there you go. Okay, so what it's now I'm so thirsty for wine. I have to know what's in your wine fridge right now. So, um, I don't, well, I don't have a fridge, but I live in a very old house with a very cool basement. So my wine lives in the basement. Mm. Um, and at one point previous to kids, I had a little bit of a wine buying problem where I'd be getting like a case of wine a week. Cause I like wines. I like wines that are aged well. And I like, you know, I'm just kind of, I like wine. No <laughs> so, judgment here. But, no but I judgment. Would, I, I've, I've since, you know, I've, my kids are older now and I'm starting, maybe starting to drink a little bit more. So I have been buying some, but right now I have a, a lot of German Riesling because it ages really, really well. And that's some of the stuff I bought, you know, for my kids, like for their birth wines. Cause I'm one of those like dorks as well, where, you know, I have wines saved for them that they'll be able to drink when they're, when they're old oh enough. Oh my God. I wish my parents did that for me. <laughs> I, I'm me too. Right. <laughs> they wouldn't, but, have, they'd end up picking some swill that would have gone well, so, 10 years ago. Yeah. So these are stuff I know will age well because German wines will age really well because of the acidity and the, the residual sugar. Mm -hmm. So the acidity acts as a preservation sort of tannin does as well, but these are white ones. So, and they're just some of the longest and they're from really reputable producers that I know have a track record that, that I know will age really well. I have some other reds as well, but mostly it's German reason. So I have a lot of German reason. Plus it goes with a lot of the food I like to eat. I like to eat a lot of like Thai foods and other Asian spicy foods. And it's just, perfection with it mm -hmm. and there's a lot of dry stuff too it doesn't have to be sweet most of it isn't that I have but um and then I have I have some random like a bunch of old Bordeaux I went through a Bordeaux phase and that ages a long time too so I just buy it and forget about it but right now what I'm mostly drinking a lot of is a lot of natural wine are you familiar with mm -mm, that no tell me more about that so it's it's a category but it's kind of it's tricky because it's not codified so there's really no rules saying what it is or what it shouldn't be so any old joe and there's a lot of people trying to make money like naked wines and trying all these people on the internet trying to sell wines saying that they're natural and not necessarily um what, but what generally what it means is that it's all organically grown or produced or biodynamically and there's a difference there we can get into if we want but it's it, you don't have to, um, but it's, so it's organic or biodynamically grown. And then there's very little sulfites added. So basically it's like nothing added, nothing taken away. So all of the work is done in the vineyard. And it's, it's mostly like, if you have pristine grapes to start with, 
um, good, good growing conditions. And you should be able to make a really good wine without manipulating it mm. a lot. Yeah. I, and so when we were in Italy, we were drinking, we were, we spent three weeks in Italy and one of the places we stayed for about a week and a half was Florence. And so we went into Chianti and did some, some vineyards there. And we both noticed that not once in all, I mean, we drank wine at lunch every day, at dinner, mm-hmm. at aperitivo, and not once did we get drunk and not once were we ever hung over. <laughs> and I think it's what you're saying though, because a lot of it is, what is it? Uh, dynamically grown or organic. Yeah. If, if it's organic grapes and the, if they don't manipulate it a lot and if they don't add a ton of sulfites and yeah. I'm not here to say oh, sulfites are evil. They're, they're great. They're necessary in, in some things, but you don't, it doesn't have to be at the level that they are. So like some wines have like over 200 parts per like PPM is what they call it. it, it of sulfites in a wine, whereas like a really good natural wine might have like 15 or mm. around 40. If it's over 40, they kind of claim that it's not necessarily a natural wine. Mm. But um, but there's different styles too associated with it. And they're they're a little fresher. They're a little stylistically different than what you're typically used to. Some people would say that they're like, you know, smelly or, or, or bad, or just like, you know, though there is a lot of bad natural wine, like too funky. Sometimes people compare it to like kombucha. Um, and that can be a little bit off-putting, but those are maybe not well-made. So there's a lot of good producers that are natural that don't even really talk about it because that's just how they've always done it. Um, but it's a huge, huge, huge area of wine right now. And it's only going to get bigger. Um, awesome. Maybe you can, suggest a couple that I can put on the website of um, some natural wines that people should check out and support. So it's tricky because it's, and there's, there's, I can give you stores that you can go and check into. That's a little easier because some of these are very small production and and it might be sold out by the time, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's, uh, Frank Cornelison is a producer that a lot of people would know. They, he makes a wine, Susa Karu, which is popular, but, um, it might be sold out in some places, but if you go to wine stores, there's um, in around Boston, there's Social Wines mm-hmm. is one store. The Wine Bottega is another. Mm-hmm. In Portland, Maine, Maine and Loire is fantastic. Um, New Hampshire doesn't really have any like just natural wine stores. They have Raleigh is a wine bar in Portsmouth and they used to have a store, but it's been expanded to just a restaurant now, but they do sell regular retail wine as well. And they have a lot of natural wine. They're great. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. So I have to know what's the most expensive bottle of wine you have ever had. And second question, was it the best bottle of wine you've ever had? Okay. So second question, no, definitely not. (laughs) I mean, it was amazing and it it was so cool to try it. Um, and I'll tell it's a little cute story not keep whatever this little story that goes with it but um it was very interesting it was definitely a piece of history and I was very excited to taste it and I've tasted a lot of other you know expensive and more expensive than I would pay being in the industry for so long I've gotten to taste a lot of fun stuff but this was probably the most exciting and it was so unique so uh, the wine was Cheval Blanc which is a right bank Bordeaux and some people might know it because it was in the movie Sideways and it was the very last wine that that my was his name mm-hmm. Miles the, the last wine that he drank like in the diner in the paper cup or whatever which was also funny because there's a decent chunk of Merlot in there and the whole movie they're like I hate Merlot <laughs> and don't even get me started like that that movie did so much for wine in a not great way, honestly. Um, but so 
Chevel Blanc. And the, the way that I got to taste it was I was working with Maria Sinsky and she is her, her and her husband own Robert Sinsky Vineyards in California. They're an organic um, winery in Napa. That is just incredible. And I tend, to, there's a lot of, I always used to poo-poo, not poo-poo, but like California wines were never my favorite because they can be just overripe and too alcoholic and too much of everything. Mm -hmm. But over the last, like they, Sinsky Vineyards have always been impeccable, but really the natural wine, um, there's a ton of people making amazing wine in California right now. But anyways, back to the story. So I was with Maria Sinsky and um, we were at a liquor store and she saw a bottle of Cheval Blanc on deep discount, like it was on closeout. So these wines are normally like $2,000, okay. but this was a 200, uh, 2008, which was not a great vintage in Bordeaux. And it was like 850. So she was like, oh my God, I'm going to get this and I'm going to blind you guys. And you're going to see, this was uh, the sales group for the company. Oh so my God. So she was going to blind us with that, with Cheval Blanc, and then their Marcienne, which is like $100 a bottle, and it's their version of a right bank Bordeaux. So basically, there's left bank and right bank. Left bank is more Cabernet dominated, right bank is more Merlot dominated, but Cheval Blanc and Marcienne are more Cab Franc dominated, but they also have Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot as well, but they have a good percentage of Cabernet Franc. So very similar style wines, and I think they were might have been the same vintage also. But so she wanted to taste us on both and to see if we knew what they were or whose was better and whose was who. Everybody at the table said that her wine was better. And this was a hundred dollar wine versus an $850 wine. You know, hundred dollars is still a lot, but. She must've felt so good. Oh my God. She was, and it showed, I mean, the Cheval Blanc was showing really well. I, I didn't know which was which, but because I knew, I mean, I didn't know, like, I didn't know they had it in paper bag. So I wasn't sure when they poured it, I could tell right away that her, I knew that, that, that Cheval Blanc was Cheval Blanc. And I knew, I knew that which one, once I tasted them, I knew what they were. Most people got the opposite though, which I thought was funny, oh, wow. but, um, but it was just incredible. It was really cool. I, I mean, that, that was probably the first $850 and last <laughs> bottle of wine. That's so, so then what is your favorite bottle? Can you even, it's probably like choosing a favorite child, but can you pick a favorite bottle of wine or glass that you've had? I know. I can't really, there's, I'm, I'm such a, it's so bougie of me to say, but I've had so many good ones. Like I've been, I've been to so many countries to, to travel and taste wine because of my job. I've been to Germany, Austria, Italy, France, Spain. Um, so, and in each of those places. Right. And you've got these incredible yeah. memories tied up well, and with, when the, you're, with the wine that the memory might influence mm-hmm. the wine in the Well, yeah. And when you're there, the they're trying to show yeah. you all the best of everything because they want you to go back and sell it. So they're really like putting on their, putting their best feet forward and had some incredible bottles that way. Some really old bottles. Like I've had some delicious Riesling from the sixties when I was in Germany, um, old Italian stuff from Barolo and just incredible stuff. But the best that I probably have bought myself was for my 30th birthday, so 10 years ago, I bought um, a Lopez de Heredia mm-hmm. 1981 vintage. So my birth year wine of their of their Rioja, oh. which their Vino Tondonia, which is their like flagship wine. And they wait, like even right now, the current release is probably 05 or something, um, but their wines are incredible. And did you open it and drink it? We I, we, I went to Black Trumpet, which is an amazing restaurant in Portsmouth, and they don't normally do corkage, but I know them well, and it was my birthday, so they let me bring it in for a corkage, and of course, <gasps> I gave them some to try, you know. That is awesome. But it was really Good fun. for you. When we were in Portugal, we did the same thing. We, my husband really loves, loves port, mm-hmm. and um, we bought a n- bottle of, like, 1980 
I forget the name of it, port. And it was like this, and you would know more than I would, but they have, um, I think it's made from a, a single vintage. And I think it's vintage port. pronounced coleita. I'm butchering that word in Portuguese, and I am so terribly sorry for any Portuguese listeners out there. Uh, please teach me how to say it properly. <laughs> Girl, that that stuff was like syrup. It was so, so, good. so yeah. good. And I think port has its place. I personally love port. I love a tawny. I think they're mm. delicious. I even like a white port. I, I love white port. White port. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I highly recommend Portugal. Um, yeah, I would love to go there. You need to go. It's such an easy flight from where we are in New England, too. It's mm. like five hours. And oh, it's really? so affordable. Yeah. And just all love. the seafood. I would just eat all the seafood. Oh, and drink drink yeah. all the vino verde. They have amazing. We I used to sell quite a few um, natural producers from Portugal, too. And they're making mm. some really fun stuff. There's a whole new generation of winemakers that are just, like, really kicking ass and making amazing wine. Yeah, I love vino verde. I think it's, I love a good, when a, when a white has a little minerality and like effervescence to mm-hmm. it in a way, yep. it, you can, I can drink that stuff and all day long and man, oh man, is it affordable. But it the, is. And it's light, low in alcohol too. Those are my mm-hmm. like day drinking wines. <laughs> totally. Speaking of, someone asked me to ask you, can one really rosé all day? <laughs> well, I mean, yes and no. If you have I, if you're making spritzes, I do that a lot. You wouldn't do that with like a super high end one, but if you have just a, you know, entry yeah. level wine, um, I, I, I add seltzer to it and then it can, then you can go all day. <laughs> oh yeah. Nana right here loves a good wine spritzy. And like when I go to a restaurant, I will get a glass of whatever, rosé, Sauvignon Blanc, something like that. And then I will ask them for a glass of seltzer on the side and I will sit there and make my own because then I feel like I get more, I'm, I'm such a Nana. Yeah. I feel like I get more wine yeah, and I can put as much booze in it as I want. That's so funny. Mm-hmm. The same thing. Um, so what really makes a bottle of wine so great and worth that amount of money that we were just talking about, you know? So yeah, and there's uh, number one would would be uh, to some extent pedigree, like who's making the wine. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a if it's a producer you know and and love, if you're if they're known for aging, like I mentioned, I have a lot of Rieslings. I have a bunch of JJ Prune. JJ Prune wines are known to to last forever, basically. Um, and then money actually does, you know, it's not a be all end all, but you know, if something costs a lot, then it might be a little more age worthy. But if you're just tasting something um, and regionally it matters, like certain wines are, are more age, ageable than others. So for example, like Rioja from, I mentioned, I mentioned Lopez de Heredia, they're Rioja. Rioja has aged really well because they have really good structure. So they have good tannin and acidity and that is acts as a preservation system sort of. So it'll, it'll help in the aging process. Um, and then terroir, like if it's from a really good site and a really good vintage, like, and it changes, like you wouldn't necessarily, there's California Chardonnay, for example, is not the most age worthy, but you can have a few examples made in certain styles. You, you don't want it overblown. You don't want it too alcoholic. Um, but then you look at white burgundy, that stuff ages a lot longer. So it really, it's kind of a guessing game to a certain extent. But you just, the more, the more you drink and taste, the more you learn like what, what works really. Yeah. And I think like you said in the top of this to go into a smaller wine store and then ask the wine buyer or the owner, if they're the buyer, what they suggest, depending on what you want. Like if you want a wine, like you said, 
to buy your kids or when they Mm -hmm. get older, then they should be able to help point you in a better direction. Yeah. And if you're going to invest money in something, I mean, if you invest money in anything, I always do a little bit of research. So it sounds like a little bit of research could go a long way, especially spending that kind of coin. Um, If Mm -hmm. someone now I know we're not really doing because of COVID a lot in restaurants, which breaks my heart because both you and I know Mm -hmm. everyone in the industry and it's so shitty. How can someone do a wine tasting at home without spending like a million dollars? Yeah. And, and it gets a little more tricky now if you're doing it for like, you know, three people versus 10 or something, Mm -hmm. because to get a good array, um, it's nice to have a lot of different options. However, there are a lot of wineries now that you can order tasting kits from them and they come and they're just small little like 187 bottles. So you can do it that way. Um, you can also get half bottles at liquor stores. Um, and but there's a there's a website. There's a woman, Madeline, I forget her last name, but it's the Wine Folly. And she has a really, really great website. It's very informative. If you have any, you know, you want to learn more about Chocoli from Spain. It's like a white wine from the Basque region. Like go on the Wine Folly and she'll have all the information you need. Um, and she has a little course. It's, I don't know how much it costs, but it's like a little PDF sort of, and it, and it takes you four to six months to do it. And it's really a interactive breakdown of, of wine tastings. And it'll tell you like, okay, let's start with this by these three wines. And we're going to taste these this week. And it kind of goes through like that. But for me, when I do them and I used to, I've done a lot of like private tastings, consultations and stuff in people's houses previous, of course, in the before times. And my first question is what kind of tasting do you want it to be? Like, are you looking for a comparative tasting in which you want to maybe compare different Chardonnay styles, Mm. different Pinot Noir styles? I love, love, love to do old world, new world, for example. So you would maybe buy two or three um, Chardonnays from a new world, like Australia, Chile, Argentina, the United States, and then compare it to Chardonnays from the old world. In this case, it would be Burgundy um, from France. And you could do that for various various um, varietals as well. So you could do Pinot Noir from, from Burgundy as well and get some from California. You could just do California versus France. So there's a lot of, a lot of different styles. You could also do a horizontal, which is like the same vintage, but maybe different wines from around the world, from the same vintage, like Cabernets from 2010, from five different places and see how it changes, you know? That's fascinating. Those are such good ideas. Thank you so much. I'm like writing all these notes down so I can do them at home with my husband. (laughs) I love to also, another one is fun is obscure varietals. That one's always interesting, you know, getting people to learn about things they may have never had before no, what would like what would be an obscure varietal like what i just said chocolate oh, is one that is from spain mm. it's um spelled t-x-a-k-o-l-i i believe i'm doing that without writing it down um grunerville leaner but that's not so obscure anymore but that is a good one because it might be something someone might have heard of or had once or twice but doesn't know too much about it's one of my favorite grapes that's my summertime porch pounder for sure <laughs> I love you so much. Oh my God. I haven't heard that in so long. We it's need to delicious. have some, yeah, we need to have a little porch pounding action. Yeah. For sure. Um, and then there's a lot of um, red varietals that are gaining more and more popularity too. Violette is one that you're getting in California. The Pays grape, P-A-I-S. Um, Mission is another grape that was originally like 
Spanish missionaries that planted it in California. There's some mission grapes even in like LA. Um, and there's just, there's just so many. And a lot of stuff I might think of as not obscure might be obscure to somebody else. Mm, yeah, no, I, I hear you. Cause you're so into it, which is, I'm um, again, in total awe and admiration mm. for all of your wine knowledge. Um, so just a couple more questions, if you don't mind. Mm. Now I know you are an amazing home cook, like amazing. I just like to eat a lot. <laughs> no, but you're a really, really, really good home cook. Is there anything you've been dying to make? Like, what are you going to make next? Because I know you're always, I know you love Asian food. I know you love baking. Like, what is you're making well, next? Hmm, well, I've been obsessed with sourdough all quarantine, like <laughs> a lot of people. So I've gotten pretty good at some sourdough breads. Um, and I, I love to like make, it's bad because everything I want to do is like carbs and bread and baking. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, you know, I make my own pasta, doing every sort of big kind of ticket stuff like that I've tried to do while I've been stuck at home. Um, It's funny because I do have a list going. Oh, I guess the next thing I really want to try, I haven't made in years, is like a Jamaican beef patty. Oh, those are so good. The top of my list. I just made this week birria tacos for the first time. Those were delicious. You're the second person that has brought that up to me in a week now. This is bananas. That's so, I have to make them now. It's very, it's been big in like the Instagram and TikTok oh, okay. food talk all and right. all that. I'm not on the TikTok. So I, I'm like, I'm obsessed. I'm like a child. It's very funny. <laughs> I go down YouTube holes on like other crap. So I figure I can't waste any more time. <laughs> like yeah. Social media has so sucked up enough of my time in my life. Um, that's awesome. So that sounds like an amazing food adventure that you're yeah. going to go on. All right. Is there anything that you would like to promote? I can give my email or my Instagram if, if anyone has wine questions and they want to reach out, that's cool. I always do. I also do, um, in-home tastings, obviously not right now, but I'm available for virtual wine tastings and all of that. Um, so my email is Sarah McKinley and that's Sarah with an H and McKinley, M-A-C-K-I-N-L-E-Y 181 at gmail.com. And then my Instagram is just at Sarah McKinley. Awesome. We we need to have you on again. So I have one last question for you, if you don't mind. If COVID wasn't a thing and not happening and money was no option, where would you go? So I, I, I don't know. I think Portugal is like the top of my list. And especially since you said it, I've never been to Portugal. They're doing really super cool stuff with wine right now. The food, the seafood, that would have to be the top of my list. Spain is also one of my favorite places in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, when you go to Portugal, you're going to go to this place in mm-hmm. Lisbon. When we were there, we did two weeks and we were in Lisbon for a week. And then we went down to Lagos for a week in the Algarve. In mm-hmm. Lisbon, you're going to go and eat exactly where Anthony Bourdain did in his Lisbon episode. Oh, it's called Ramiro. They say they don't take reservations, but if you no, if you email them, ah. they will. I mean, this was years ago. They yeah. they said, yep, as long as you're willing to come before eight o'clock. I'm like, oh, I'm American. I want to eat at like six. <laughs> and so 
<laughs> you know, like that was, we were always the first in line That's in funny. Italy, in Portugal, anywhere in. I Latin see before world. kids, I ate like European. I thought I was Spanish. I did like dinner at nine, like all the time. Oh yeah. No, mm -mm, yeah. no, no. When we were in Italy, we were first there at like eight oh. o'clock, like knocking on the door, like, hi, we're here, we're ready to eat. No, but anyway, so we went to this place and there was a line so far oh. out the door and my husband and my brother were with me and like, I don't speak Portuguese yeah. very well. My brother lives in Brazil though. So he speaks. Oh. Well. And so I said, I made a reservation. I'm going to go up there. People were screaming obscenities at oh me in Portuguese. I opened the door. I stick my head in and I was like, is Carlos here? And he's oh. like, I'm Carlos. I was like, hi, I'm Beth. I emailed you about the reservation for tonight. Oh yeah. Come on in. Amazing. Oh yeah. I stick my head back out the door. I'm like, guys, we're all set. And like, yeah. Everyone in the line, my brother said, was swearing. Like a celebrity. That's so cool. Yeah, in Portuguese. And so anyway, you go in and you're going to do two things. You have to get the crimson prawns. And they are, I'm not kidding you, the size of a dinner plate. Like each wow. one is massive. And they almost look like. The fork in the yeah. Oh, yeah. And they look like lobster tail almost in the sense of like the deep, mm. beautiful. It's like a ruby red slipper color. Oh, my God. Amazing. Mm. And then you're going to get. And we, I mean, do you, but we got this huge spider crab and they lift the top of it off. And it's like this, and some people might think it's disgusting, but like the head and all the juices inside and they yeah. give you this incredible bread. garlic bread that you dip yes. in. No, and here's the best part. At the end, they're gonna, I'm salivating. They're gonna ask you if you want dessert. You say yeah. yes. And what they give you is a bufana, which is a, sandwich made out of that delicious garlic bread and uh steak so it's like i think it's filet <laughs> and it's been seared on a flat top with onions and they give it to you with mustard and it is and that's so, dessert, that's dessert. <laughs> it is so good you're just gonna pound beers and this is what you're uh. eating while you're there and i'm telling you it was the best seafood I have ever had in my life was in Portugal. That yes, that's why I want to go. I love seafood. So there in Greece is the other place. Mm -hmm. Greece would be mm -hmm. my number. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah, I can't thank you enough for all of this. I'm going to put all of your contact you so information much. on the website and all of these fabulous notes that you, I've been taking notes this whole time while you were chatting. I am so in awe of your knowledge of wine. I can't wait to pick your brain again. I love you to death and I can't wait to have dinner with you and drink some amazing wine and eat some Thai food because I miss you so much. Yes, we need to eat and drink. <laughs> All right, I love you. Thank and, you um, so much, I will, Beth. I will see you soon. Love you. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Well, we've come to the end of episode four. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for all your questions. Again, the show notes are at www.elizabethrfuller.com. And keep those questions and voicemails coming. Please send them to let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com and tag me on all of your food adventures and recipes you make on Instagram at let's go on a food adventure. I just want to take a second and thank our guest again, Sarah. I put all of her contact information on the website. You guys, thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, make some yummy food for one another, and I'll see you next Friday. Bye!